You're listening to The Artful Periscope, the nimble art of storytelling, pulling the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. Out of the darkness into the light. I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome to the podcast, Artful Periscope, where we explore the nimble craft of storytelling. How many threads connect the authors and what we can learn? On this episode, and I'm thrilled by having both of them back, is Nelson and Alex DeMille, authors of Bloodlines, their latest collaboration. Nelson DeMille is the author of, man, he's been writing a lot of books over the years, 23 novels, and I still remember the first one I ever read, The Rivers of Babylon, and his current effort with Alex is called, titled, Bloodlines. His book, The General's Daughter, became a major Hollywood film, which I really enjoyed. It took a long time to happen. When it happened, it was well-received. Mr. DeMille was a combat-decorated U.S. Army veteran and a member of Mensa. Smart father, smart son. Alex DeMille is the director, film editor, and co-author of Bloodlines with his father. Alex has a B.A. from Yale University, M.F.A. from UCLA. And Nelson and Alex DeMille, welcome to the podcast, Awful Periscope. Thanks, Larry. Good to be here. Thanks. So, Nelson, I pull, and I'll put this question for both of you. I pull little things out of the book as well as big things. And before I even got to the first chapter, something really fascinated me. And you can talk about this. It's a quote from, an, uh, for, uh, I guess, and it was at one point in his life, it was an Italian Marxist, Antonio Gramsci. And I'm, I think I'm quoting relatively accurately. The old wa- uh, wars are – the old world is dying and the new world is struggling to be born. To what degree does that inform the whole book, Bloodlines, Nelson? <laughs> Larry, you're so over the tough question. First of all, Alex found the quote, but I do know the quote. The quote is fairly famous and it can be you know, used at different points of history. Um, I think he was a Marxist in the 20s, and maybe Alex knows better. Right. Uh, it, it does. I mean, it's, you know, we're on this cut. If we look back, and I was a history major, you know, so I tend to look at things from a longer perspective. I step back and say, you know, what, what, where are we now? You know, we're in a post, post-Cold post War world. People don't even identify it as that. But 100 years from now, people will say this is post-Cold, you know, post-Cold War, right. post-COVID, post-9-11, post But that's the old world that's, you know, dying. Uh, but what, what is being born? Nothing. I mean, as far as I know, nothing is being born. I don't see anything out there that looks like one of these mass movements that we saw uh, in the 1920s and 30s, whether right. it be communism, fascism, socialism, nationalism. You know, we don't see any of that. We see a lot of um, a lot of disjointed uh, causes and people's uh, grievances, but we don't see anything positive. I think anyway. So for the first book, The Deserter. Alex came on the podcast. It was one of the best episodes we ever had. So thank you very much, Alex. And I asked him, because I think there's always two stories in a book. The first story is inside the covers of the book. The second story is actually more important to me, in a sense, is where does everything come from? Where is the background of the writer? And I asked Alex, when was the first time you realized your father was, quote unquote, Nelson DeMille, and he gave a really interesting response. So I'm going to ask you, Nelson DeMille, when was the first time you realized that you could collaborate with your son on two books? You know, um, it was it was one of those, those sudden moments. It wasn't really thought out. It, popped, it literally popped into my head. Um, 
I had a contract with it, and I still deal with my publisher, Simon and Schuster, very three uh, three book deal, three co-authored books, and uh, we we ran a contest and you know, with people submitting blind, and we picked somebody, and uh, there were blind submissions. I don't know if they were male, female. I just picked one I thought was the best, and my agents agreed and hired this fellow, and it was a total disaster. Uh, I just couldn't work with him and vice versa. So I put the project aside, but the publisher kept bugging me for it, and the agents bugged me. You know, they want they wanted the co-authored books, and I kind of really didn't want to do it. I'd done one co-authored book Mayday, and it was not a good experience. So I said, let's let this go. But I was sitting there one night all by myself in my lazy boy recliner with a glass of adult beverage of some sort in my hand. And it just, just struck me. I said, Alex DeMille. Right. Alex DeMille. He's a writer. He's a screenwriter, but he can certainly be a novelist. So I called him that night. It was probably 10, 11 o'clock. And I said, how would you like to co-author a novel with me? And he said, no, thank you. <laughs> And then I mentioned, uh, I told him it would be easy, but I don't believe that. And then I mentioned the number, you know, what the publisher was uh, offering. So he said, well, maybe we can talk. And, but it was perfect. It was just, you know, as soon as, I, as soon as it popped into my mind, I said, this is going to work. I had no, no hesitation that it was going to work. And it did. So, Alex, we talked about in the introduction that you have a background in filmmaking. And there's something in the world of film, when you're actually shooting a film, it's called the master shot. So in a sense, is there a master shot for this book? The big overview, the big look that captures everything. That's an interesting question. Um, <clears throat> I would say, you know, the thing, the, the thing I started with when we were coming up with this book was actually the setting. Um, I mean, maybe the idea, first idea was a murder mystery. And the second thing that occurred to me is I want that to take place in Berlin. Um, and everything else was kind of downstream of there. So I, I suppose you could say the the cityscape itself um, and all the different, you know, the historical lines and fissures and communities and, and memory and all the, all these interesting things about the, the legacy of, of that city throughout the 20th century and now the 21st. Um, was it was kind of the what germinated everything else uh, that came after it. So you're of one generation. Your father is a different generation. I'll go back to Nelson. Are your worldviews essentially the same, or are your worldviews different? And if they are, how does it affect how you guys get together to write these kinds of books? Uh, no, we don't have the same worldview at all, as a matter of fact. Uh, you know, well, he's a little bit more progressive than I am. Um, but, you know, um, and, and this was good in a way because some of my books uh, are a little bit out there. And uh, uh, my, especially my John Corey books, uh, the guy's politically incorrect. He makes fun of a lot of things that people might hold sacred. But with Alex, he was kind of tempered it down. I think we, we reached a happy medium. Uh, in terms of politics, left, right, I think if you read this book, we read The Deserter, you would not know where these two main characters stood, which is important. Sometimes they sound open and liberal. They have certainly liberal ideas about, you know, race and things like that. Then other times they sound like what they are, Army Criminal Investigation Division, you know, detectives. And uh, 
So he he balances me a little bit too, and maybe he's learning a little bit of uh, you know from me about um, you know how my generation looks at the world as opposed to his. So Alex, if nascent writers out there want some tips about how to do that, the one thing I find that fascinates me and I kind of gravitate to is put your characters in harm's way and then see how they can extricate themselves. Do you deal with that in terms of the art and craft of storytelling? Yeah, I think that's a good rule. <laughs> it's a good, it's a good way to create tension. Um, you, you, some of, some of the stuff you decide ahead of time and some of it kind of comes to you as you're writing. Like for instance, this story, these two U S army CID special agents uh, being sent to Berlin to investigate the murder of an American um, in Berlin, not, not on an army installation, just in a public park in the city. Um, so I had to look into, you know, what kind of authority do these people have? Who do they work with? Um, and the answer was uh, they really had very little to no authority. And they had there was lots of agencies that would be involved in something like this. So off the bat, that tension, which I think my father's done really well, uh, especially a lot of his the, the counterterrorism stories in his John Corey books, um, where you have this kind of alphabet soup of agencies and clashing cultures and who, who has this jurisdiction and that. So that was the first kind of. Uh, roadblocks to the characters was that was it was it was it was a form of danger because they were uh you know getting into legal murky legal territory and maybe sacrificing their careers and then as the story goes of course you get into more like mortal danger um but i didn't want to jump but i didn't want i wanted that to be more of a slow burn um, i think sometimes people jump to that too fast and <laughs> some some thrillers and you know we want we wanted that to kind of unfold in a would feel like a more organic way I can't speak for the writers. I can speak for the readers. When there's conflict, we hope there's resolution. You're bringing back two of your signature characters, Scott Brody and Maggie Taylor. They are the epitome of conflict resolution because they have to deal with each other from the first book, I think was about five months prior to this book, and now getting together. And I think that whole thing of how you both work that out brings the reader along because we want to see how they're going to handle situations on a personal level as well as a professional level. So how much input is going to that, those character developments, Nelson? Well, you know, people want to read about people. <laughs> like, you know, my novels are all character driven. Um, you know, a lot of American novels, as you know, Larry, are plot driven. And that's the difference. They, they say the difference between American novels and British novels. British novels are character driven and not a lot going on. Just a lot of quirky characters doing quirky things. American novels start off with an explosion and they go up from there and, and the characters seem to get lost. And um, I read a lot of British novels. I read them when I was young and, and they kind of stuck with me. So what I try to do is make a blend of the British novel uh, with the characterizations. You can have three-dimensional characters in a thriller. Right. Thrillers don't have to be pulpers. They, they could be three-dimensional and... People like John Le Carré, you know, well, his plot's a little bit weak too, but the British writers, I'd rather read a British novel with great characters than an American novel with a great plot about blowing up the world and nobody cares about the characters and nobody cares if they get blown up. So, you know, it's a, you got to do well. It's not a line. You, you don't, you don't walk the line. You got to actually merge these two worlds of deep characterization. And the editors, of course, sometimes are saying, you know, this is supposed to be a thriller. Can we move this thing along a little faster? And what do we care about the personal relationship between Brody and Taylor? Well, um, 
the first book debuted at number three, and this book debuted at number two. So obviously somebody knows what they're doing, and that's me and Alex. And uh, you know, but you always have to fight with the editors because they they they're kind of in a box. You know, they think this is what the the thriller is supposed to look like, and we we have a different view of what the thriller is. <laughs> so to be fair, our, our our current editor didn't didn't do that. I mean, he didn't, he no, didn't, he didn't push back. Yeah, he was he was supportive of our approach. I happen to yeah. know your current editor because he's also a great writer. That's Colin Harrison, right? And uh, he's also I think it was his book. One of the books that we interviewed was the Havana Room. So you've got one of the best editors in the business. So what role yeah. does he play? Because I often think about Pete Hamill, who I, I love to death. And Pete Hamill is such a great writer that I wonder if he took any feedback from his editors. And he said, yes, I listened to them. And this is a man who was an editor himself from major newspapers. So in terms of the relationship between you and Colin, can you expand on that? Well, that's what I'm jumping from. I'll, I'll, I'll expand. But yeah, Colin is a, is a writer. And that made a huge difference. Um, I've worked with only one other editor who was a writer. And it made a huge difference. Uh, they understand... What you've done, or what you tried to do, what you try to get away with, they, they have a kind of a sixth sense because they're writers themselves. So Colin was good, you know, but uh, over the years, you know, I've had my ups and downs with, with editors, and um, they, 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 they want to be helpful, but sometimes they uh, are trying to make work where there's no work. Um, you know, I read something, I, I've already uh, I've, I've done three, three or four, five, six drafts of it. I've agonized over it. I think it's where it needs to be. And they're reading it for the first time with a blue pencil in their hand, making marginal notes. Excuse me, you know, read it a second time, third time, fourth time, you know, read it as many times as I drafted this. So, uh, you know, but we we, uh, we were blessed with uh, Colin. He's a great editor. Alex, you want to follow up on that? Yeah, I would say that, I mean, this book was unique. It, it, it kind of went through an editorial process before it got to Colin in a way because I was writing the first draft of the book and then I'd give, depending on what, when it was happening, I'd give my father two, three, four, five, six, seven, sometimes 10 chapters at a time. He would read them and do his, his notes. Um, and then sometimes his edits and sometimes inserting certain things, taking things out. Um, so he and I kind of had this, it was a co-author process, but it sometimes it felt like an editorial process uh, between us. So I think Colin, um, when he read the book, um, he, his notes were, they were kind of succinct and they, they, they weren't too many of them, but the right. ones they, they right. were, were kind of right on the money. You know, like he had a, I'm not gonna say he had a light touch, but he had like a, he was precise about, about what he came into, uh, to, to give suggestions or ask a lot of it was asking questions too, again, cause he's also a, He's also a creative, you know, so sometimes if he bumped on something, it wouldn't say, this, you got to take this out or this is not working or do this instead. He would say, you know, what, what is, why, why, why are they doing this or why are they saying this? So it was a good process. Nelson, I believe you have an interesting worldview and I want to refer to something that maybe be a definition of a Greek tragedy. And I'm thinking about a character to meet early on, Harry Vance. And kind of the way you describe Greek tragedy, it's the thing that makes you great is the thing that brings you, in a sense, down and having to do something. And we, and this is a very central character, but early on, something dramatic happens to him. It's almost a form of a Greek tragedy. Yeah, you know, um, you know, the when you when you're killing somebody off, you know, when I, when I first started writing, all that is said to me. Uh, I was writing kind of pulpers with uh, uh, maybe too many dead bodies in them. 
uh, an old editor said to me, um, one tragedy, uh, one one uh, one murder is a tragedy, multiple murders are a sanitation problem. So I always remember that. So Harry Vance is, you know, uh, and I'll give a little bit of a plot away. He he's dead, and when the book starts, he's basically dead. Uh, well, he's you see him, then he gets killed. But he, we've developed him, and Alex did a good job of developing him and giving him, you know, life and giving him depth. Uh, so when he when we do find him dead, even though he's only in the book briefly, uh, it resonates. It resonates. We want to we we the reader want to know who killed him. Uh, it's easy to say. A bad writer would say, you know, some CID agent got killed, and the CID guys are after the murderer. Well, no, we had a you know, and again that's prologue. So you do the prologue, and sometimes you know, editors, publishers don't like prologues sometimes, but sometimes you have to set it up that way. And I look at it as a movie, and I'm sure Alex does too. You know, these, you have these opening scenes that don't that seem to be sometimes disjointed, like a lot of the older movies were made, and they they disjointed, but they're really connected. Then you start to realize what that was about as the uh, as the story progresses. So, Alex, as you said, this I believe settings are also characters, and a lot of writers will talk about that because. It's another way to move the story along, not just your characters, but where everything is taking place. In what degree the Berlin in your book has the worlds from past and present collide? Yeah, that's definitely a major a major theme of the book. Um, when we started, I had a number of different things that interested me, some from the past, like the East Germany and specifically the Stasi secret police, um, more in the present being, uh, the, the kind of refugee crisis and the, and the, and the right wing resurgence in, in Germany. Um, and I had all these kind of things in my head and, and I, like, I've, I, like, I don't know if or how these things connect. Um, and I'm not going to force it, but I kind of started looking into it. I'm not going to give anything away in the book, but I, I found something, a uh, real thing from the past that kind of like, it was kind of an aha moment for me that realized ways that I could weave, weave these things together. Um, and, and also just reinforced that all the interconnectedness of the, of the past and the present and the, the, the cold war and the, the, the former communist country and the former Nazi Germany and the present day United Germany, which is, you know, the most powerful and, and wealthy country in, in Europe, arguably, but also has such a more traumatic recent past than other countries in that region too. So yeah, it, it, it was it was a it was a lot to pull from, um, and uh, it was interesting to find connections as I was writing. So, Nelson, one thing that you seem to be, do very well is be prescient. A lot of your books, you're writing sometimes years before the events take place, and they seem when the book comes out to almost predict what's going to happen. So, when you sit down to write this book with your son, do you worry about what's going to happen? down the road that you may be off base in a sense or you miss the boat in terms of geopolitics and the current events of the world? That's a good question. And uh, yeah, I do. Of course you worry about it because the, the, uh, the book takes a long time to write. It's a long process. And then sometimes the publisher will hold the book. They'll hold the manuscript and not decide, you know, decide not to publish for another three, four, five months. So a lot of time has gone by between the time you had the idea. Uh, and if you're writing about world history, and a lot of my books are, you know, are geopolitical thrillers. You think, you know, you're afraid that the, you know, the events of the world will overtake the book. But I almost had that happen with the Trump School. It was a Cold War thriller, classical Cold right. War thriller. Right. Well, I went to Moscow in 87, 
Um, actually, 86 was the year of Chernobyl. And, um, you know, I said to myself, this system is so dead. This system doesn't have 10 years left in it. And I had one of my characters say the same thing. And I remember an editor said, that's kind of optimistic. You think the Soviet Union has only 10 years left in it? Well, I was wrong. I had three years left in it. Um, but you can see it. Um, and by the time the paperback of the Trump School came out, the Cold War, the wall had come down. So their events did overtake the book. Um, and, you know, you, you can't chase the headlines, but you've got to, and when I was writing the last book, uh, not the last solo, but this one before, The Cuban Affair, it looked like Cuba was on the verge of actually, it was during the Obama administration. Right. It looked like it was possibly a you know, rapprochement, that something good was going to happen after all of this. And I'm writing this book about how bad Cuba is and how they hate the United States, or not the people, but the government. And I'm saying, you know, events could overtake this, but as it turned out, no, nothing has changed there. But yeah, you do think about it because if you, you're not, if you're not writing a, you know, a, <laughs> you're not writing a romance novel or something like that or a historical. Uh, you're writing something in the present where the present and and and, and history and, and the news have a lot to do with the plot. Then you got to think twice before you make these big leaps. You got to kind of think. You got to think into the future and say, if something happens, it's going to ruin the whole book. But it doesn't usually. But I've been I've been lucky that way because my, all my geopolitical thrillers have survived the uh, survived the headlines. Well, I want to go back to my opening because I went back and read your first book under your own name of Nelson DeMille because you've written under different names, I believe. The Rivers of Babylon, going way back then. You kind of knew central in terms of the world, going what's going on in the Middle East. It's It's been going on since uh, mankind came on the planet almost. I'm, that's hyperbole. Right. But yeah, I think going back to the first book, you kind of had an inkling this is going to be rich territory for storytelling. Yeah, um, that was 1978, and it was really the beginning of the um, the beginning of terrorism. Really, was we think it goes back further, but really, the late 70s, planes were being hijacked for the first time, and bombs are going off. And um, you know, I, and this, and uh, Thomas Harris had written uh, Black Sunday, which was this right. huge right. one of the first of the uh, of the you know what do you call Islamic thrillers, if you want of a better word. Oh, terrorist thrillers, and uh, you know it was a huge movie and all that. So, and I was right behind it with uh, the Rivers of Babylon. But again, I thought, you know, um, um, is this going to what's going to change? It's going to make the book change. One thing that did change, actually, if you read the book today, funny thing is, you, the book could read as a contemporary novel. Not that much has changed. The only thing that did change is uh, I had Iran as our, our ally. As the Shah was right. on the throne when I wrote right. the book. Other than that, um, there's nothing, not too much has changed, unfortunately, as we see recently. So, Alex, another thing that shows the maturity of storytelling, you've got people that have a goal in mind with an assassination. But you've got the Mossad, you've got the CIA, you've got the FBI, you've got the federal German police and the local police. And although they... They hoping something's going to happen. Their agendas are totally different. So when you sit down to work out that mechanism, and Nelson can amplify it to that, is that the difficult part of the book, or did that come easy? Because you're juggling a lot of balls in the air, metaphorically. 
it was definitely difficult. Um, and I was part, I was tempted to, I read, I, I had, I had my call, call my cast of characters. I, I wrote each of them on like a post-it and stuck them on the wall. And I was kind of shocked at how many people I had brought into this story. And I'm like, this is, maybe this is too many people, but I was trying to go off of what would be real. You know, this was a high profile, complicated case. Um, all these agencies would have some sort of interest. And again, like this was, always I thought a strength of my father's books, which both gave them tension, but also gave them, uh, give them a, a sense of realism. Um, so I wanted to try to capture that and no, it wasn't easy at all. Um, I mean, the research to figure out wh who, what these agencies were and what their jurisdiction is. And then, uh, you know, you don't want to get too in, into the weeds on that because you're, you're trying to, you're writing a thriller, but the, so the research at the, when you at the best of times, the research gives you ideas, dramatic ideas, you know, story ideas. Um, so in that sense, I, I was looking forward to doing it and employing it in that way. And uh, you know, hopefully we did. So when you're sitting down and working on this, do you read anything else besides your own research? So you're not going to be not distracted in a sense. And also I know that your father still writes, on a legal pad, I think. Yeah. You'll probably do a little bit different, but there's any way that when you're seeing that, because this, even though you're working with your father, you both of you are in the bubbles. It's kind of a lonely exercise. It's just you and a few people you love and trust. So when you're sitting down by yourself, do you stay away from other books? Do you sit and listen to music? What is your process? And I'll go first, Alex, and then Nelson. Uh, I don't, I try not to read, I mean, I read nonfiction, yeah, for research, or even if I'm going to read something for entertainment, it's going to be nonfiction also. Um, I feel like a really, if you, if you read fiction, especially really good fiction, the voice of that writer gets in your head, at least for me. Um, I don't want to start, you know, writing like somebody else. Um, and I, yeah, sometimes I listen to music. Sometimes I listen to um, classical music so that there's no words, or if I'm listening to, you know, something with words i might actually occasionally i'll put the same exact song okay. on loop right. literally for hours because then it becomes it becomes ambient you know because you've heard so many times it almost becomes it fades into the background um but sometimes i like i like silence too it really depends on my mood and it also depends on what i'm writing uh for some of the stuff some of the more action stuff later in the in the uh book i was listening to uh you know, KMFDM, like German industrial techno, which seemed like a good, a good, a good, a good, a good energizing uh, uh, music to listen to. And because I don't understand German, the, the lyrics weren't distracting me too much. It was just kind of this fun, energetic uh, thing in the, in the back of my mind. John Steinbeck's son, Thomas Steinbeck, told me something that's real interesting. And I got to spend multiple interviews with Thomas talking about his father, who I never met. And he said, my, when his father used to come downstairs from writing, he was still kind of in character. And the one thing he did was make sure his kids were reading. If they were supposed to cut the lawn, he would bribe them. You don't have to cut the lawn, but read a book. So, Nelson, going back to you, that how did you kind of shape Alex in a sense? And I'm fascinated by it now because you probably could stop writing if you want to, but you still keep doing it. And my biggest disappointment that I've had recently in the last few years, we have done so many interviews over the years, and you're most, one of the most gracious people I've ever met, but I miss having the chance to talk to you about the maze. So why do you keep going? What is the motivation to do what you do? Oh, well, um, 
Yeah, I mean, you know, there's two things going on. One is nothing succeeds like success. I'm successful, so it reinforces it. Uh, the other one, the other, the other strand of that, or the other opposite side of that coin, is that you should quit while you're ahead. Because you know, you and I, Larry, we know so many writers who were like big in the '70s and '80s, and right. people don't even remember their names anymore. Sometimes you know they they faded, you know, in a natural way. Sometimes they just wrote three bad books in a row. So. It's always, it's like Joe DiMaggio. I think he knew he had his best year and he knew he was a step down and become a legend. And I think about it too, of course. Um, but on the other hand, this book, uh, the new one, Bloodlines, uh, is debuting at number two. So uh, had, it, they, had it not even made the list, <laughs> maybe I'd think about it. You know, but, uh, but, I, but, I'm, but I'm confident. I know what I'm doing and I'm happy to have Alex, you know, uh, co-authoring with me and uh, I think that kind of re-energized me too the fact that I have a, uh, a younger man my my son uh, working with me it's uh, it's kind of interesting and you know at this age you need to be energized by something and you know the uh, the royalty check is nice that's energizing okay uh, you know, the New York Times bestseller list good reviews too I have to say not only commercially but critically this has been a success. Um, so, you know, it's, it's reinforcement, it's like keep going, but at some point you got to say to yourself, you know, I'm slipping or I'm about to fall off a cliff, one or the other, and I need to step, step aside, but I don't know if that day is here yet. That day's not here yet, but I want to mention the fact that you, so many writers and authors that you know personally, a fair amount I've had the privilege of having conversations with, but as you get older, some people pass on. You knew Mary Higgins Clark and Carol Higgins Clark when that situation, and I think you knew them very well. Correct me if I'm wrong. So when your when your contemporaries go, how do you react? What is what is your emotional response to that? <sighs> That's a good question. Um, yeah, and and in Mary's case, you know, Mary was older than me, and you know, I helped his family. She was. She was a trooper right to the end. She wrote to the end. And, uh, you know, Mary led a great life and, and, and had a beautiful death. She just died of basically old age. Um, Carol was different. Carol was more tragic and she died too young. Uh, that affected me, I think, because that wasn't the natural order of things. Um, you know, and other writers I know over the years passed on. Um, they it, it, does, it does affect you in a way because... You know, not only did you lose somebody you knew and somebody you could talk to about this business, but you're saying, you know, were they fulfilled at the end? I mean, at, at, at what point did they, are they like old rock stars who died after, long after their, you know, their, their best years and died maybe alone? And, you know, and a lot right, of authors right. don't have that kind of, you think best-selling authors make billions, they don't. Some of them, you know, are in their last years are not doing that well. So it really depends on, I guess, where they are and where they were in their career and where they were in their lifespan. That's interesting you, you mentioned that. And I'm going to go to the Godfather books. And the saddest thing about the end of Marco Corleone, he's sitting by himself in Italy as a very old man. And that is pure tragedy. And I think you're also touching on that. Sometimes you end up, but the... Exception to that, the Rolling Stones just put a new album out. 
So they're still doing whatever they do. And I saw Mick Jagger on the latest edition of SNL, and he came out, and he was terrific as a character in a couple of the sketches. But I, I think about, in one of your most successful books, that seeing Michael Corleone sitting there all by himself was, for me, deep sadness. Yeah, well, that's, uh, that was it, was it was brilliant the way it was done, too. I mean, I have a 16-year-old, Silly Godfather last year, he was 15. Um, he doesn't want to see adult movies particularly. I force him on him to try to broaden his education. He watched The Godfather 1, Godfather 2, and he wanted to watch it again. Right. This is what happened before. Um, it was Pauli Puzzo. Puzzo was, you know, the novelist and the screenwriter in that case, and the whole supporting guest, but it was just, it's brilliantly done. I think if we look at it and examine how it was done, it's all about the human tragedy. It's about, you know, uh, excessive pride. It's about violence. It's about passions. And we don't see a lot of that in novels anymore. We, the old novels had things like adulteries and cheating that was like considered the worst thing possibly. But we said we, we live in a permissive society where it's hard to shock people anymore. So I think that's part of the part of the issue too. Um, but if you examine some of the great books and some of the great movies, they all have the same, I think the same theme, which is hearts full of passion, jealousy, and hate. This is really what it's about. It's about this is the human condition. People don't want to read about, you know, I mean a great plot of blowing up the world or something. And right. it's kind of fun, you know, and James Bond is kind of fun, but it's not the same as, uh, it's not the same as a Godfather. So I'm going to go to Alex now, and this is where I appreciate what both of you have done in terms of putting this book together. It's a page turner. There's no doubt about that. It. It's almost 500 pages and the pages really turn and you're getting your money value for purchasing this book because you, you can, it's a terrific book and you keep getting pulled along and along. But there, there's a character in this book whose code name is Odin. And where I'm going with this is, and if you know the background of who Odin was and what this character does, he, Odin took his own eye as an act of self-sacrifice to gain ultimate knowledge. And I can't speak for both of you because both of you have great depth of knowledge but for me, it's a personal journey. I, when I sit down to do this and I read and do my research and get to talk to both of you, I want to learn something. I want to walk away, for me personally, learn something. And hopefully that translates anybody listening to my interviews and the podcast. So I'm going to go back to this about a character and the background of something that's called knowledge and ultimate sacrifices in terms of gain that knowledge. I find that, and I don't know if anybody's going to pick up on that in the book, but I think you, both of you, intuitively touch upon something that hopefully will resonate beyond driving the narrative along to the conclusion. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's one of those things that that, that's, that, that specifically this person whose call sign is Odin, I kind of have thought of it without thinking too hard about the implications at first. Maybe they were in the back of my head, you know? Um, and then as I thought about it more, I realized, I sort of realized how this was slotting into all these themes. And you know, Scott Brody uh, is the protagonist, male protagonist of this book. Is He is kind of 
I was almost, you know, maniacally driven towards this, towards finding out the truth and, and kind of fulfilling his mission, even if he's not supposed to be doing what he's doing. And you mentioned Harry Vance, who's the murder victim in the beginning. And, and I wanted him to be kind of almost a, the, you know, the, the ghost of Christmas future or something. Maybe that's not the right term. He, he, he Brody looks at him and can see where his, right, right. where he might end up too, you know, um, which doesn't mean he shouldn't be doing it, but it's these characters who are kind of just, yeah, need to know. They need to know what's around the next dark, next dark, the dark corner. They need to know the secret, um, and they're willing to sacrifice um, their career, their lives to, to 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 know and to to uncover the the mystery. So what I'm going to do now is Nelson has forgotten this. Alex has never heard this story. I have never told this story for public consumption, but I'm going to tell it now. I was on stage with Nelson for one of his previous books at the Madison Theater and always a tremendous turnout of all his fans. And I don't even remember the question that I asked, but I asked the question and somebody shouted from the audience, we didn't come here to hear you talk about that in terms of my question. And Nelson said, basically said, being kind of polite, You're, if you don't want to stay, you can leave and let Larry ask any questions he wanted to ask. And Nelson, you don't remember that. I have never forgotten that, the way that you handled that. And once again, I want to thank you personally. And Alex never has heard this story, and it's the first time I'm telling that. But that speaks to who you are as a person, that you could have, you know, you could have said, oh, don't, you know, you don't want to turn the person off. He was going to buy a book, whatever else. But you said, we're here, we're talking. If you don't like the conversation, you can leave. So for the first time ever, I want to say thank you to you again, Nelson. And Alex, so it's, once again, that speaks to what your dad is all about. Um, he's very protective. And I think you can understand that as somebody growing up in the DeMille household. So, I don't, all right. So, I, I mean, I kind of stopped the conversation, but I just wanted to put that out there and put it on public record. The New York Times in the Sunday book section does something that I always pay attention to. It's a short firm form interview. And one of the questions they ask periodically is, if you could have a meal with three other people, past and present, who would you invite to the meal? So I'm going to go to Nelson first. Who would you, if you could have a meal with three other people and you want to bring Alex in to be the extra person, but I'm asking Alex the same question. Who would you have a meal with just to kind of touch? Well, I know you love history. So who would you bring to, I don't know, an Italian restaurant, whatever you want to go to have conversation and good food? I'm going to ask that question and I'm trying to think of my answers. Uh, George Orwell always comes to mind. I would love to sit down with George Orwell. I think he's one of the great writers English language. I, I kind of tend to think of writers too, but uh, you know, another one probably be uh, probably be Franklin Roosevelt. I mean, I think there was there was a lot to that man. Uh, he's a politician. I'm going to try to name somebody who's either not a politician and not a writer. Um, and um, I'm trying to think who comes to mind uh, as far as TV stars. Or movie stars, I really can't think of any that, that has ever fascinated me enough to want to have dinner with them. And I've had dinner with a couple, by the way, uh, and uh, without naming names, some of the more boring dinners I've ever had is with uh, actors. Um, but uh, so let's go to let's go to a female. Let's just go to let's go to Julie Christie. Okay, who I've been wow. With since I was uh, 15 years old. I think she's fascinating just to look at and to talk to. And I think there's more to her, too, than, you know, than 
then her handlers let on. Uh, so yeah, I, I need a, I need a woman at dinner. So it's Julie Christie, George Orwell, and Franklin Roosevelt. So a follow up to that question. I wish somebody had asked me this question. I never had because I'm never on the other side. But if there's a knock on your front door, and you you open the door and somebody's standing there, who would catch your breath? Who is the person you would want to meet and totally shock you because you're at your front door and you go, wow, I can't believe you're standing in front of me. Well, will an Alex take that? Is that Alex's question? <laughs> no, that's for um, you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go down to That question's for you. Know. Question for me. Uh, front door... Oh, gosh, that's a tough one. Um, somebody obviously alive, because if they're dead, they would definitely shock me. That would definitely shock <laughs> Yeah. Somebody alive, um, probably, oh, gosh, I'm trying to think of anybody who I hadn't seen in years. Uh, maybe somebody from my, probably somebody from my high school past. All right. One of my old teachers that are still around, I think I would love to see them again. And I can think of a few, so but I won't give any names because they could could have passed on. But I think instinctively, when you get older, you go back, you know, to that time uh, when you were very young, maybe in your late teens, early twenties. Yeah, somebody from my high school class. I, we still get together. Alma Memorial High School, right here on Long Island. Yeah. We still get together, and when I see, you know, and there's still a few teachers that are still actually alive from uh, it's been 50 years now. So that was that was kind of shock me. Yeah. All right, so Alex, you've had plenty of time to think about a really great answers. Let's go to the meal uh, first. It's hard. To, <laughs> it's hard to. Uh, it's hard to come up with a, with with a good answer, especially after following my father's answers. It's honestly not something I've thought about for some reason. Whenever somebody asks me like, "What's your favorite this or that?" I, I don't know what it is. My my mind just draws a blank. Um, I was trying to think, what is it that I'm interested in with people? Uh, this this book, you know looking into some of the pretty pretty dark stuff in Germany's past. Not that I would enjoy having sitting down to to dinner with Joseph Goebbels or, or somebody like that, but I am perversely fascinated in how people like that uh think, you know, especially, you know, the the you know Hannah Arendt's famous okay, Hannah Arendt. There we go. I just came up with one. Banality Banality of evil. Banality of evil. Um, Thank you writing uh, uh Eichmann in Jerusalem, which was one of the most affecting books I've ever yeah, I don't. I don't want to sit down with Adolf Eichmann, but I would like to sit down with with Hannah Arendt. She's a brilliant, uh, brilliant mind, and somebody who's is, she's already thought a lot about how these evil minds work. So, so I could talk to her instead. Um, that would be interesting. Um, I was thinking about. I was thinking about filmmakers I'd want to talk to. If there wasn't a uh, if there wasn't a language barrier, I would say Sergei Eisenstein. Okay. Um, I think wow. he was a fascinating. He, he was kind of a nutty guy, um, and kind of a fascinating personality, and to be. Interesting just to see how it's just one of those people who's such a pure artist that you you try to um not, not so much that he could explain what he does, but just by meeting somebody like that and being in their presence, maybe get a little bit of a clue into how they how they produce what they do, you know? Um and I'm gonna I'm gonna piggyback on my father with on the politician side and say not not Franklin, but I've always I've always had a fascination with Teddy Roosevelt. Um, I remember it being in the and down in the kind of lower level of the Museum of Natural History, you know, where they have a lot of stuff about T Teddy Roosevelt. There's this picture of him on his quote unquote presidential retreat. And he's like sitting outside of a, like a wood shack with like mud up to his waist. Um, and he was, I mean, he almost seems like a person out of time, almost like a, 
a caricature of, of of somebody from the past, but it'd be interesting to 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 meet somebody like like that and see you know how much do they reflect the legend? How much has the legend kind of kind of grown you know after them? Um, so that's my answer. All right, you're not going to escape this. The front door question: Somebody knocks on the front door. Come on. Somebody who's, somebody who's alive? Well, yeah, well, I, use your imagination. Even it can be a character, fictional character. I'm just curious. Oh, who would character. I know who, if, if, if I had a chance to be in front of President Obama, that would take my breath away because it's never okay. going to happen because I don't have the clout to have a chance to interview him. But you yeah. guys have a lot of clout, a lot more clout than I do. So who would that be for you? I don't know if I could meet Obama either, but um, I don't know. I don't know. I can't. I, just, I, I can't come up with a good answer, Larry. I'm sorry. That's, no, that's, that's fair just, enough. Right, right. Uh, yeah. so I'm going to do one more thing because I always want to. I I'm a fan of quality interviews and programs. So I'll go back to Nelson. You have done so many interviews over the years. You were terrific guests at Writers on the Vine. You, Susan Isaacs, and the late Don Axon, and we get the biggest turn every year that you came. So all the interviews that you've done. Maybe this is not fair. It's like picking the favorite child. Can you remember one of the best questions you were ever asked? Um, that's you know, I guess the the you know the general question the the question is why do you write? Why do you write? Uh, it's always the why question. It's always the best question. Okay. Why do you write? And I to this day I'm not quite sure. Um, I started writing, never expecting to make a nickel out of it. So it, money wasn't the motivator. Um, and fame, the same thing. You know, you don't think you're going to be famous. So, but what do you write? What do people sing? What do people paint? Why do people want to express something inside of them? Um, some creative thing. This is talking about creative stuff now. I can see why people sing. Maybe it sounds good to them. Play a musical instrument, paint. Uh, because the painting is there on the canvas for the world to see, and it could be good, it could be better, it could be worse, whatever, but it's there. Thing with singing, playing music. When you write, nobody's seeing this stuff, nobody's reading it. Even, even your mother won't read it if you say, Mom, please read my chapter. Right, right. Yeah. So it's a lot of work, you know? It's a lot of work to read, it's a lot of work to write, it's a lot of work to read. It's a very solitary occupation, um, and it's not, uh, it's not a public art. It's not a performing art. It is writing. Um, why do we write? I still don't know why I write. I like telling stories. And um, I used to do it to my long-suffering children orally. <laughs> I told them stories since they were, yeah, when they were little kids. And uh, I think they appreciated the stories. And uh, But at some point, I, you know, they said, I wanted to sit down and put pen to paper, uh, literally, and, and right, and I'm not. I'm not sure why. Uh, whatever, whatever, whatever it is that makes people that the creative people have in them that makes them do it. Uh, it it's there. Maybe a psychologist could answer that question. So it's a perfect segue because I'm asking Alex something different than what I asked you, Alex. What is your father's legacy going to be, as a father, and as as a writer? How would you describe him? Uh, the first, the first word that comes to mind is generous. Um, I think g generous with his, you know, his craft, um, you know, you know, 
uh, anybody who's talented at storytelling shares those stories and what, even if it's, you know, it's professionally or for whatever reason, that is, that is, a, that is a form of generosity. Um, it's a hard thing to do. It doesn't matter how much money somebody's paying you. It's still a hard thing to do. Um, and you know, he, 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 he's generous with his, uh, with his money, you know, good, good with charity, um, with, with his time too, you know, being on the road with him and, uh, being at these you know, book signings and other events and, and people are there and like some of the, you, you, you hear about how far they've, they've driven to be there, you know, um, just to have this, get a book sign and talk to, talk to him for a minute. And, um, he's, he's generous with his energy there and he, he's with his attention and his time and he's, he makes everybody feel like they are important. And, um, I, I'm impressed by that. And it's, it's a good, it's not that he's, he's not being fake about it. It's just, it's, it's just a good, it's a good, reflection of his character um and how he treats people any, anybody he encounters you know i would say that's 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 a legacy and also he's he's funny i think he's he made a lot of people laugh he's got a great sense of humor and i think it's one of his great contributions to the to the, the contemporary thriller genre well both of you have been very generous for this podcast the book is bloodlines my guests have been nelson demille and alex demille thank you both so much I'm Larry Davidson, and this is the podcast Awful Periscope. Till next time, bye-bye. The Artful Periscope podcast is brought to you by The Booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York, consistently voted the best on Long Island since 2015. You can find the Artful Periscope podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks goes to our producer, Christy Cristofaro, sound editors and engineer, Ryan O'Hagan. The song Alleluia is performed by Vanessa, and you can find her music at starfrost.com. October Blues is performed by Dana Songs and can be found at danasongs.com. If you enjoy this podcast, Visit Larry Davidson's website for more interesting content at LarryDavidsonsProductions.com. You can also find out about other author-related events by visiting Sachem Public Library's website at sachemlibrary.org. Join us next time as we pull the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. Tired to her kitchen chair, she broke your throne and she cut your hair.